Backroom Politics. And good afternoon, everybody out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics live from an expanded cross-country edition here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, broadcasting live from the uh, Tobacco Leaf in Robbinsville, New Jersey, just outside of Trenton, the central seat of government here in the Garden State. Joining me as they do every Tuesday is a fellow Garden Stater who currently resides in New York City. She is the former attorney for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 campaign in Ohio. She is the one we know as Sharmila Achari. Sharmila, how are you? I'm great, Justin. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And other than the fact I'm in South Jersey, which is never a bad thing, uh, joining me also on the line, he is the man that we know who has served at last count four presidents. He is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs, longtime staffer, longtime Washington insider. He's the man that we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. All good here, Justin. Hello. And joining us from across the country in the great state of California, out in the liberal Bay Area where he should feel right at home, he is the bar-certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia, former Joe Biden political operative for the Democratic Party. He is a man we know as Dan Lipner Esquire. Daniel, how are you? I'm doing good, Justin, but you, you, you jumped the gun. I, I'm on my way to the airport to go to California. I'm not there yet. Oh, well, then, then good safe travels to you before you go. Hey, we have got a lot to talk about. There is a ton of breaking news, ton of stuff going on, <clears throat> but we're going to start off with a White House in turmoil. For those who do not know, this all started late last week when it was revealed that uh, White House Staff Secretary uh, Rob Porter, who has been with the campaign and now with the administration since its inception, Rob Porter uh, was known to have had at least two instances of domestic violence brought up against him. One of his ex-wives, it was found out through various reports, actually got a, uh, a temporary order against him, a protection order against him in Northern Virginia. It uh, then sparked issues of how, who knew what and when. It did cause, it did cause uh, Mr. Porter his job. He then since resigned, or depending on who you talk to in the White House, he was fired once it was discovered that these accusations were in fact true. Uh, it then uh, came up that a second member of the administration, White House Chief Speechwriter David Sorensen, also had issues with domestic violence. He has since resigned and has started all kinds of calls and put White House Chief of Staff John Kelly on the hot seat. There have been various reports uh, floating around Washington, D.C., whether or not General Kelly, in fact, offered his resignation to the president uh, and, was and was denied the resignation, uh, which many in the White House, including General Kelly has said that is categorically un incorrect. But there have been others that are saying that, uh, in fact, he did offer it, but the, tre the president did not accept his resignation. So there's a lot of confusion there. It has sparked a lot of turmoil. It has put 
the White House on the defensive in a manner that we only see every few weeks in D.C., but it has sparked a lot of consternation, everything from national security issues, background investigation issues, who knew what when, accountability in the White House. It is, this is such a broad subject, but let's get on it. Um, let, let's start off with uh, Dan Lipner. Uh, Dan, when it first came out uh, that, that Rob Porter, in fact, had been in the White House of the administration, the fact that he had put in for a security clearance but was given an interim clearance, why is that such a big story, unlike the actual story, which was had the president hire a person with these type of domestic violence charges against him? Well, so it's important to, while the two issues are related, they also create two distinctly different problems. So the national security side of things is, is the easier of the two, meaning that because of issues in his background, he couldn't get a absolute clearance. He had the interim clearance. And for senior officials in the White House, clearances generally come pretty quick, assuming you pass the clearance. Um, it, it's something that gets pushed through because they, these are folks that directly serve the President of the United States. Uh, but the fact that he only had an interim clearance after a year and was handling classified material leads to a question considering it was one of the major issues of last year's campaign or to the campaign of a year and a half ago now, that supposedly the mishandling of national security information by Secretary Clinton, that would suggest that the Trump folks maybe were just talking the talk and not walking the walk as far as how seriously they took the national security side of things. Now, the other side of it, is the domestic violence side, which should not be understated and is directly linked to the fact that he only had the, or at least we think directly linked to part of the reason he only had an interim uh, security clearance because when the, as I understand it, how the FBI goes about doing this is it's any issue that can, that can be used against personnel by a third party to influence or blackmail them. So if somebody has access to classified information and they're somehow compromised and somebody gets this compromising information, uh, that is a reason not to grant somebody a security clearance. It's why for years, uh, for decades, that, that if, if you were gay, you could not have a security clearance because it was something that for, for general society for a very long time – it was considered a taboo, and therefore it could be used to blackmail somebody. Thankfully, that particular thing has changed. Um, but in this case, apparently the administration doesn't think domestic violence is taboo enough that you could be publicly embarrassed by it. Um, I don't entirely know. Uh, but it's hard to come up with a formula where the White House response makes sense. But... Uh, they're trying badly, but they're trying. Alan Moore, you know, it, it, it seems to me that let, let's talk about just the procedure of this, that, you know, for a campaign to bring up the issues that it did against Hillary Clinton, whether it was the 
uh, inappropriate behavior of President Bill Clinton, whether it was the mishandling of sensitive documents. This seems to have backfired. You would have thought that they would have vetted their personnel a lot more extensively, or did they vet him and just say, this will never come out? Well, remember how what what kind of a flood of people shows up at the very beginning. All of this work is there. The world wants answers to all sorts of questions. They don't have a team of experienced people ready to move in. During the transition period, you start trying people out, um, getting some sense of who you can who you can hire, what kind of jobs they can have. Um, I'll, I'll point out that, that uh, sort of remind everybody that if you don't start out with a security clearance and and, and almost nobody in uh, in the Trump transition or Trump process had a security clearance, and it's not unusual that you would have very few, but a lot of times you'll have people who have had them in the past and they and they can update them. But 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 by and large, this was a group that was extraordinarily thin on any previous security clearance. It's an in-depth process where you provide all kinds of uh, detailed information about who you know, where you've lived, where you've worked, how much you've traveled, whether you have friends overseas. I mean, it's it, the, the fact that Jared Kushner has had to re, re, redo, um, update his uh, first application numerous times speaks to two things. One, general incompetence, but also the, to the fact that they really want to know so very much, and he's been he's done a lot of things over time. He's somebody who still doesn't have his clearance, so far as we know. But it's not unusual that people, everybody starts, not everybody, but almost everybody starts with an interim. And then, as as Dan pointed out, you're at the front of the line of clearances. I mean, it's it's cabinet members, sub cabinet members, White House staff. Those are the folks who who move right to the front because you want to get their clearances in place. And when those clearances aren't in place, it makes you wonder what is the hang-up. But nobody presumably, I, I, you know, one doesn't know. There, there's no evidence that the, that the White House personnel process knew uh, of uh, this man, uh, Rob Porter, uh, prior history of marriages, they may or may not have asked about it. He may or may not have been forthcoming. The stuff that we were reading about and horrified by was stuff that initially came forward during the FBI process. And the FBI goes out and it talks to your former, your current and former neighbors, current and former employers and former wives. Um, and we can, talk about when they started talking to former wives because there was a famous case and back in 1983 that we don't get into unless it becomes relevant but they've been asking ex-wives uh uh questions of at least since 1983 um and and uh whether porter knew that who knows whether he was worried about it who knows i think there's a lot of denial that goes on in in these cases now what's really interesting is how poorly uh, one <laughs> how much trouble the white house has in getting competent people so they've got uh, uh, a, a lot of challenges in in, in starting uh, starting fresh then it's interesting how dysfunctional the clearance process itself seems to be and then finally it's really amazing and and, and sort of troubling 
how horrendously this White House has handled the communications side of this whole thing because the story has changed constantly from day one of what they knew, when they knew it, whether he was fired, whether he resigned. And th- these these inconsistencies are coming out of the mouths not only of Sarah Sanders standing there, presumably speaking for the president in the White House press room, but also General Kelly himself has made con- some comments that are in conflict. And just today, up on the Hill, the head of the FBI has added some new information, which undercuts the the the, the meandering storyline from the White House about about whether uh, Porter was still in the process or not. The FBI director said, "No, no, no. We had finished that. We had closed that twice. We closed it last July, opened it briefly in November, closed it again." And then two weeks ago, got some additional information, which we communicated to the White House, possibly those photos. But 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 <laughs> this thing was closed months ago, and obviously the FBI had simply it, – it, it doesn't actually make the call. The White House makes the call, but basically said, yeah, we can't recommend clearance because of uh, uh, of all these factors. So – on, and 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 on, and, on and Alan, let me one or two day story. Yeah, it should have been one or two day story, and we're still learning new stuff. Alan, let me just uh, give background to the listeners uh, regarding uh, FBI Director Ray. Uh, the breaking news that happened earlier this morning was during the annual intelligence community open session uh, committee hearing in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, Director Ray, the current a Trump appointee to replace uh, fired Director James Comey, Director Ray came out today and said that in fact, when he was asked was what was the pr- process that happened regarding Rob Porter, he did, as Alan pointed out, say that it, he had gone through the full process, that the White House had asked for. Uh, additional information and clarification on it, not necessarily deeming him unsuitable and adjudicating him negatively, but according to Director Ray, the adjudication came for denial of the clearance because he did not reveal these in, these uh, pieces of information, and that caught a lot of people, including the White House, by surprise. So let me go to you on this. Does it shock you tremendously that the White House could be this inept at a key figure like the staff secretary, which handles all of the sensitive documents for the president, does it shock you that the White House was this inept in vetting somebody for a key position like staff secretary? Not the Trump White House. I'm not shocked in the slightest. And what's honestly shocking (laughs) to me is that the brunt of the blame here is falling on John Kelly, when really it should be divided, I think, between Don McGahn and Reince Priebus. Don McGahn, has been, who is the White House counsel, has been aware of these allegations since 13 months ago. He was first informed, whether by Porter or by the FBI, in January of 2017 that potential allegations like this could exist. I believe it was Porter who told him that, oh, there are some issues with my marriages that might come up that might affect my security clearance. Right by July, he had the report from the FBI recommending that, you know, 
that uh, that full clearance, that top clearance couldn't couldn't be or wasn't going to be recommended. By September, he had another warning that top clearance, you know, was being delayed because of these issues. In November, an ex-girlfriend of Porter's contacted Don McGann to say she had a similar experience and referring him back to the stories of his two ex-wives. And this was in response to rumors that uh, Porter was dating uh, White House Communications Director Hope Hicks. Don McGahn and his office failed on multiple levels. At, at some point, he must have communicated this to Reince Priebus, who was then the chief of staff. Remember, John Kelly only took over in July. And so Reince yeah, Priebus so was the first one to become aware of these issues, and it's shocking to me that he's escaped any blame for this. Well, let me ask, let me ask this question first to uh, Dan Lipner. Dan, is there possible legal exposure whether civil or criminal, that could be placed on White House counsel Don McGahn or the president himself? On this? I'm yes. not certain how there would be any legal jeopardy. Um, so just hearing Sharmila uh, talk through uh, the Hope Hicks connection, I'm reminded that, uh, that people who date Hope Hicks promptly seem to part ways with the Trump organization campaign or White House. I think a few of her, a few of her uh, previous partners are, are, are now ex-Trump affiliates, but that's just a little interesting side note. Uh, Alan Moore, hang on, hang on. Go ahead. Yeah, hang, hang on here. Before we condemn uh, Don McGahn, I'm not defending him, but, but I'm not prepared to defend him, uh, to condemn him, because I don't know, none of us know, what he did with information that he received. The, the interim security clearance is granted by the president himself. Now, at the very beginning of a process, it's kind of a blanket thing. It's like, we got to, Mr. President, we've got to give interim clearance to all these people. We have to go through this process. It takes, it takes some time. We've got this team of people. It includes your son-in-law, probably your daughter. I don't know what kind of clearance they were getting for her. They haven't talked about that. Um, the, the, the staff to Priebus, um, uh, some Bannon people. And it starts out very broad, and, and it's pretty routine to do these interims. And then as the process continues, uh, people get clearances, or they don't get clearances. And sometimes they don't get clearances because more information is requested and required uh, and, and, and tardily filed or takes longer to, to, to check out. I think that's at least part of what's going on with Jared Kushner, at which point the president, his, his, I'm guessing, and I'm not sure about this, the process here, has to bless a continued interim security clearance. Um, that's what Jared Kushner today operates with. That's what Rob Porter had been operating with. I, ha I don't know everything that McGann was told, and I don't know what he did with the information. It's not his call to decide whether to continue an interim uh, security clearance. It's entirely possible that he re reports this to the chief of staff at one point, Priebus, but when it got, got, got more challenging, maybe that Kelly said, this is one of the few people who's competent around here. Um, I, I want to keep him around a while and see if we can figure out how to how to get him finally cleared, and then get the president to extend 
the uh, the the interim clearance. Jared Kushner, that's that's seems pretty obvious that the president would want to continue giving him the interim clearance. We're now though it's it's reported that there are something like twenty to thirty other people who are still operating who've been there for a long time, not just new arrivals, but been there for a long time. It, I'm not sure how long in, in these cases, 20 to 30 people operating under interim, interim clearances. That seems unprecedented that at this time uh, in, in, the, in, in the life of a White House, that there are that many people who on an interim basis are handling sensitive things. When you do that, they, they don't get access to everything. You try to compartmentalize what they are uh, what they actually see. So uh, I don't know if they were compartmentalizing Rob Porter or not, because he's the guy who handles physically yeah. all the paper that has to go to the president, um, which is includes a lot of highly sensitive stuff. Um, Jared Kushner supposedly got to see the daily intelligence brief, which is filled with America's top uh, top secret sources and methods and so on. Um, which is highly, highly unusual, but it's unusual to have a son-in-law in, I, in, in that kind of position. And, and I do want to clarify one thing, that, and this is a technical term, but it's not being reported in the press, and, and we here at Back from Politics do like to deal with all sides of the story. It should be noted that if you are granted an interim clearance, it does not prevent you from handling sensitive material. It is just the level and the type of sensitive material that you are able to get eyes on and read into. So there's a lot of misconceptions about the fact that he never should have had access to uh, secret or top secret uh, security information. The reality is if he was granted a TS interim clearance, he would be able to view and read in on some of the classified material that is normally brought before the president. However, uh, it does beg the question, though, and, and Sharma, I will go to you on this, it does seem that a lot of heat is being lit under the rear end of General Jane, uh, John Kelly, White House Chief of Staff. You'd point out that you're kind of surprised by this. Does it surprise you that nobody is really going after Reince Priebus saying, what did you know and when? It does. And and and, 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 and let me just follow up on that. Let me just follow up on that real quick. Is there culpability that Ryan's previous has to hold? So so far, and again, I'm shocked. His name hasn't surfaced in these allegations and in and in this saga, and especially for a White House that's so comfortable with throwing people under the bus you would think that Reince Priebus would be the number one head to roll, considering he's already out of the administration. But it is a question of who knew what when, and the timeline links up that Don McGahn, there is a possibility, you're right, uh, Alan, that we don't know what Don McGahn did with the information when he was told it. There is a possibility that Don McGahn raised this to Reince Priebus, but because it was the early days of the administration and things were so chaotic, it never went anywhere because everyone was operating on interim clearances and they figured that this would all sort itself out in the next few months. Then Reince Priebus got kicked out and Kelly came in and that's when the, el that's when the allegations should have gained more steam and that's when ideally McGahn should have reported them to Kelly again and that's when these, al these allegations and this problem kept rearing its ugly head. So 
yes, in a way, John Kelly, there is a reason that John Kelly is getting this blame and not Reince Priebus. It is understandable. But to me, it's still shocking that Don McGahn, Don McGahn's name is not being raised in this more often because it seems that he committed a much greater dereliction of duty to me than Reince Priebus or John Kelly. Let me follow up with that. There, there is reporting, and there is reporting that, and part of the reason I say this is because there is reporting saying that Don McGahn specifically did not raise this issue or recommend that his clearance be revoked because he believed Porter was a competent and valuable presence in the White House. Let me follow that up with... That that distinction outweighed the fact that Rob Porter was accused of potential domestic violence against two wives and a girlfriend. Right. And and let me follow that up with Dan Lipner. Dan, you know, going off of what Charmla was saying, didn't Don McGahn have an inherent responsibility to bring this not only to Reince Priebus or John Kelly, but also doesn't he have a responsibility as White House counsel to deliver this information to the president himself that his staff secretary could be a problem? Yes. (laughs) I mean, I can't be more emphatic about that. The absolutely yes, and my question consistently in this White House is where the hell does the buck stop? If the president isn't in charge, then, I mean, it's nice of him to give back his paycheck to to various different charities and stuff, Uh, but, you know, if he's not going to do the job, it would be nice to have somebody there that would uh, and, and takes the paycheck. You know, presidenting is kind of real work, so... I, I mean, I, I appreciate the rest of staff falling on their swords here, but how many of these snafus, hiccups, or outright incompetent actions need to occur before people just say, by the way, Mr. President, you don't know how to run your, run your White House, or even hire somebody who knows how to run your White House? I mean, his general is who he loves. General Kelly is seems to be having his own problems, and he's now been there long enough, and the White House Chief of Staff has a pretty big job with some serious juice. Uh, he, he has the pick of whoever he wants in the, in the White House, assuming the president lets him. So one of those two has to be true, and it seems to be the president, I'm going to guess Kelly could bring a whole army of people, literally, uh, into the White House if he wanted to, uh, or or was enabled to by the president. So I'm guessing uh, there, there, is, there, there is one, the audience of one is what is dictating all of these problems, issues, and mistakes. Alan Moore, Dan brings up a very valid point, is the question that we're finding that everybody's asking inside Washington is, who's really the adult in charge at the White House? Do we have an answer for that? Well... Okay, so on this issue, even <laughs> I'm fascinated by our, our our conversation and who the different ones of us are are prepared to blame. I lay the responsibility on John Kelly. John Why? Kelly sets the because he's the guy that sets the rules on access to the president. Dan says, "Oh my God, Don McGahn should have marched in and told the president." as though that would have made a difference, folks. Think about that. But I'm guessing that John Kelly said, here's the new rules, folks. You don't go in there unless I agree. Um, We got to control access. 
we got to control information. This is for the good of the place, the good of the country. Um, and, and, and if Don McGahn says, to hell with you, John Kelly, I'm going in to tell the president something you told me not to talk to him about, then that's a firing offense. So, so I, I don't know that that happened. All I know is John Kelly knew or should have known because these are his people. That he, I think he inherited Porter, but was thrilled that there was somebody who seemed competent in this position, and was and was delivering. And here's Kelly having looking around, saying there aren't that many people I can trust, and there aren't that many people who are competent. This guy is one. And my hunch is, and these are hunches, folks, that that McGann would have reported that somehow it would have been reported to Kelly. We got a problem with Porter on his security clearance. What's the problem? Some, some, some accusations from ex wives of, of wife, wife abuse, John Kelly coming out of the military and, and having a, a history or at least of one incident where he it was a character witness um, for, for a, a, a Marine, officer who i don't think it was spousal abuse um but it was it was uh it was a domestic uh, violence charge i i think so um and and he said he's a fabulous officer um and i am not i'm not i i'm kind of have this hunch that you put those things together and kelly is able to compartmentalize and say yeah, that's bad. That's something he's doing on the home front. But thank God he's competent in the job because so few people are. That my hunch is that I mean that narrative fits the facts more for me. Um, and there's nobody who's able to say to Kelly, "Excuse me, General. I think you're missing a big point here." And there's a and there's a level of vulnerability. I don't know whether Kelly can receive that kind of advice but but kelly's the the roadblock the bottleneck it's an enormous amount of power and authority vested in one man and if you don't get that one person right or maybe two or three reagan had three people who were sort of filling that role as a as a troika um uh you you are in great risk and and so that's why i I, I a lay primary, not sole, but primary responsibility on Kelly, and and uh, primary responsibility on the response, on the screw up, on the constantly changing narrative, on him trying to get people to say, as soon as he found out the new information, which apparently referred to the photo of the black eye, uh, forty minutes later, uh, uh, Porter was uh, was out of there or told he had to leave. It, and, and, you know, this is in this constantly shifting. He was he was fired in 40 minutes. It was his own decision to leave. Um, he he had he was he had to go. Um, what was it and why can't we get a clean answer? And that comes back to this communications absolute incompetence, which allowed a one or two day story to still have questions about it. Um, we should now be, instead of asking about, about Porter and Kelly, we should now be asking how many people um, who, who are still operating on interim uh, security have, have uh, a clearance, have had their clearance completed. 
like Porter did months ago. Are there others in that situation? Are there others whose only sin, if you will, is is domestic violence? Uh, are, are are there other sins that sh- that that, sh- that that showed up? Who are these people, and what do we know about the process that they're undergoing? I'm really interested in that, and I think we all have an interest in that. Um, not that I don't have an interest in in how the the Porter thing unfolded, but it brings up all these other questions that speak to uh, the mess that the White House right. is, and uh, especially under the the vaunted general. Uh, 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 John Kelly, who is no question a great military officer, but he is tone deaf politically. He said stupid things about about dreamers, uh, not not filling out their applications. I mean, he's he's made a number of stumbles, which remind us one of the reasons that it's not always a great idea to bring a former military person into a job that is so inherently well, visible and political. Let's, let's, let's talk Alan's about... Point, go ahead, go ahead, Sharmila. To add to Alan's point, I, I, and he touched on this briefly, but one of the reasons that the backlash is so heavy on Kelly is due to his incredibly tone-deaf response to when these allegations came out. Remember, he, as Alan said, perhaps he compartmentalized, but when, this, when these allegations first came out, he issued the most glowing defense of Porter that I have ever seen from a White House official talking about how he couldn't say any bad things about him and he was such a trusted confidant. And, you know, this is before pictures of the um, pictures of the ex-wives came out with black eyes and evidence of a, of a restraining order. And so part of you can't ignore the impact of sort of Me Too and the backlash against, you know, the general backlash now against violence against women that's also tainting sort of public perception and I think the White House response to, to, to General Kelly because it is tied up in that as well. It's not just about the cover-up and the shifting timeline and who knew who, what, what when, but it, it is about the diminishment and the lower prioritization of domestic violence and violence against women. Well, that's, let me ask you this question, Charmaine. That's part of the story that we haven't well, discussed yet. Well, and, and we will get to that because let me tie it in this way. Are, if the accusation is that uh, Rob Porter had used cocaine as late as December 2016, are we still talking about this now? I think I think it would be a much more of a – I think then the, the story would still be the security clearance story, but it wouldn't – you know, I hate to use this term, but it wouldn't be as sexy without the more, more salacious allegations. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have this much steam in the media. The domestic violence that is underpinning this is the more salacious aspect that's keeping this in, as part of the news cycle. Does, does, does the White House spokeswoman have any culpability here? I mean, she's been really hammered in the media for disseminating some really bad information. Dan Lipner, is, is she part of the problem of the fact that what should have been a two-day story we're now going into week two of? I mean, which spokesperson are you talking about? Uh, Kellyanne Conway has been out there as well as uh, Sarah Huckabee. Sarah Sanders. Um, yeah. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, yes. Uh, the, so, I mean, both of them, but Sarah uh, Sanders, 
the White House briefings, I mean, they're amusing to watch, and the occasional back and forth between her and the press, but is anything that comes from the White House press secretary really proven to be that reliable other than the salaciousness and the stuff that ends up on TV? I mean, it's tragic since the White House press secretary is supposed to speak not just on behalf of the president, but by proxy, by half of the, <laughs> on behalf of the nation. Uh, but because this White House can't stay on message for communications on anything ever, uh, it, it, I don't know what you do. I mean, I, I'd say I feel bad for her, and there are folks, uh, Republicans out there I, that I do feel bad for. Uh, everyone in this White House opted into this by choice, um, and I've heard nothing in the press of anyone standing up and telling truth to power and saying, Mr. President or Sir Chief of Staff, uh, what you're doing is wrong, and if you don't fix this, I'm going to resign, and by the way, I'm going to do it publicly and make sure the country knows. I mean, at a certain point, um, yes, you are serving at the pleasure of the president, and if you cannot follow uh, those instru- the instructions that are laid out for you, yes, it is your duty to speak up and then then quit. But whether or not you quit quietly, depending on the nature of the issues, this isn't just the proof of loyalty. This is – well, actually, I will say it's proof of loyalty, but the question is proof of loyalty to who or what. And – this is the business of the nation that is involved in the White House, and if it truly is that incompetent, it's kind of good to know. So that's the question. And people out of a sense of loyalty, uh, seemingly to the president more so, um, are continuing to spew this nonsense either because they – they are incompetent, which would be the better answer, or because they're continuing to try and cover for the true myth that is the White House. I mean, take your pick. So let me um, let, let me let me ask uh, Alan Moore this question. Alan, does it does it surprise you that? The White House response, I mean, particularly with the recent uptick of the Me Too movement, does it surprise you that there's been a distinct lack of commentary from this White House about the fact, I mean, all we heard was domestic violence won't be tolerated in this administration, and that's the last we heard about it. We now have two key White House staffers that have been dismissed or resigned as a result of domestic violence accusations, does it shock you that this has not been, that the White House has been in front of this? Well, Justin, that's not in true. Of, you in, heard in, from the president in, in front saying of this? that. <laughs> you, yeah, you're, we're talking about the White House, and remember, all, all, all roads lead to the Oval. Um, we, we have a president who has been accused credibly of of bad behavior um, towards women. Um, we've all seen things he has said and ways he's treated women um, verbally, and then we've had accusations from, as I say, 
a lot of women about uh, and from and from his own lips uh, uh, about groping, about unwanted advances, unwanted kissing, etc. Um, and and uh, and then he denies. So what what he tries to do now is, I think, uh, justify his own history of denials by um, at least mentioning in the case of Judge Moore um, and in the case of Rob Porter, well, you know, it is worth noting that they've denied this. He has not said, and I believe them, although in the case of Roy Moore, it was pretty hard not to conclude that he believed them since he was supporting his candidacy. In the case of Porter, supposedly he has been angry as hell inside the White House, reportedly, about how this could have happened this way and what were, what the heck uh, uh, were we thinking, and yet goes out and, and, and gives this statement about lives that are ruined by, by unfair false old accusations that have not been proved and that are that are denied by the persons and we have to think about that too now that has brought forward this series of questions to sarah sanders well does the president believe these women or not because he's not said so and then there was a you know a painful exchange yesterday where where Sanders was trying to say, well, this statement that I read to you before indicates sympathy towards those women. And they said, but how come we haven't heard from the president? She said, well, I'm his spokesperson. And, and the question was, he doesn't need a spokesperson. He tweets. He talks about stuff off the cuff all the time. How come right. he won't say it? And, and, and that's, a, you know, it's a very damning uh, episode and a reminder of, the hell, frankly, that that uh, that that Sarah Sanders and others uh, live through on a daily basis. Now, just I just wanted to say one thing about Dan. Dan said the people in the White House are either stupid or they're incompetent. Take your pick. Well, I, I think it's more complicated than that. I, I I'm not uh, uh, so willing to uh, to just cast them all aside and condemn uh, them all. I have my different different of opinion about different ones and and the pressures they're under and try to project right. myself into these situations. Right. What would it be like, especially if you're if you care about your country, you're trying to be loyal to to the the people around you, including the boss, um, and he makes that challenging. Um, but sometimes you're saying, you know, he makes a lot of mistakes, and he's right. not my first choice. But he got elected. He is the president, and sometimes he really is treated unfairly. Let me um, and 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 so so you kind of go through this these mental gymnastics of of deciding right. what can I say, how do I say it, how do I defend? Um, right. And then at the end of the day, you go home and you think, oh my God, we just dug our hole deeper today. How did right. that happen? What? It, how come we can't get? Some of this stuff, right? Right. Let me go to Sharmila. Sharmila, you had a comment uh, before Alan. 
Well, I was going to say, I was going to disagree with Justin and say this White House has made a comment on the Me Too movement. You have the President of the United States talking about, as Alan mentioned, false allegations and how lives are ruined by a mere allegation and no mention of the president of all people has not mentioned domestic violence. He has not mentioned uh, violence against women. He has not mentioned anything, you know, uh, sexual misconduct. He has not said any of that. His surrogates and his aides have, but the president of the United States himself has not once denounced any of these issues. He's literally only talked about the men who are accused and defending them and saying, oh, well, they say they're innocent, so that's what I'm going to believe. Dan Lipner, is is this a situation where this, along with the Mueller investigation, along with other missteps by staff, is this a situation where this could unravel uh, the legitimacy of the Trump White House and the Trump administration? Is, is this just another brick on teetering him to not being reelected in 2020? Uh, well, the legitimacy question, I just will simply respond to the president's legitimate in any way, shape, or form. Uh, his reelection, listen, everyone, every last one of us thought uh, he was going to be uh, watching politics from the grandstands at this point, uh, so uh, I, I, I certainly hope he's not going to get reelected, but I'm embarrassed like the rest of us that we called it that wrong. So um, who knows what happens next? Well, let me, ask you, let me ask you this question, Dan. Does America care about this? Does America care about this? Uh, yes. Well, that's a different question. So I, I, I heard a number today that the approval rating uh, for the president amongst women is in the 20s, uh, which was a staggering number uh, to me, uh, which is amazing. And as a party split issue, uh, certainly doesn't help Republicans. If that plays out and women vote, yeah, it'll matter, and it'll show that America cares. But unfortunately, uh, the what America proves to care about doesn't necessarily result in votes at the at, at the at the polling booth. So it's to be seen. I hope it does, and the evidence suggests that in the, the last uh, off off year elections. Uh, it might, since there's lots of pickups in seats, in seats that Democrats never in a million years thought would be competitive. So hopefully it does, but I am sure as hell not uh, going to uh, lay what, what what reputation I have left on the line predicting <laughs> the future of this president. Sharma, uh, let me go, let me go to you with with the amount of women that are now seeking office in the upcoming. Uh, midterms, does this give ammo to that sector of the electorate? Does it give ammo to those seeking office? Could this be a new wave that we're going to see as a result of the past two weeks? 100%. And it's it's not this issue is the tip of the iceberg. It's the president's pattern of disdain and dismissal of women that, you know, has 
that started during his candidacy and has continued through his administration. And when you add on top of that the policy changes that they are trying to enact in order to curb women's access to health care, to uh, limit entitlements that often that are often benefit most working uh, working class women and single mothers. When you add in all of these elements, of course, it's going to turn women against the the GOP and the president, and it's going to give a, a great opening to female candidates who can come in and say, "Look, I understand your struggles. I understand the the difficulties you have in, you know, making it from day to day and providing for your family. And I'm going to be the one who's going to advocate changes." to make your lives better. And they can say that much more credibly than the, president can, than the president can because the president has demonstrated that he does not care. Just around the table. Yeah, go ahead, Alan, real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure what Sharmal is referring to about all these uh, cuts in programs that will disproportionately affect women because I don't see any stomach on Republicans or Democrats to cut anything in the way in the way of spending. But that, that'll be a subject uh, – for another time, I was simply thinking. Actually, it's going to be our next subject. Also, it's going to be our next subject. Well, I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to push back a little on the suggestion that that Trump is saying, in effect, I believe the guys. I don't hear him saying that. What I hear him saying is, he wants it both ways. He wants to uh, <laughs> say goodbye to to uh, 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 some some people that that he's sorry to lose. Talk about how sometimes people face false accusations um, and, and, and try to pretend that he's not giving the impression that that's what he's saying uh, about these women. But remember the other thing about his own history. He was accused in, in, in his divorce proceedings by his ex-wife of violence in marriage, including marital rape. She later withdrew that particular charge but that charge stuck and it kept popping up and the president was uh who only he and and his former wife know what actually happened between the two of them but it it sounds uh pretty much like there was some physical uh violence in that marriage and and so trump is sitting here trying to figure out the president is trying to figure out Gosh, how do I, you know, kind of remind people that sometimes accusations are unfair, even though history shows, evidence shows that although that occurs, it's very, very rare. So here's this president who's trying to have it both ways, but it comes across as very antagonistic uh, towards women, and it feeds into his continued declining support uh, yeah. among women, which has right. made a difference in well, the special election so far and is likely to, to play out uh, in tw- later this year, and that remains to be seen. Sharmila, go ahead. Alan notes, it's interesting. Alan notes that to him it seems that the president wants to have it both ways, and he's not defending the men. To women, he's defending the men. That's why his approval rating is 29% with women right now. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Round the horn, one word answer. Does this cause John Kelly his does this cost John Kelly his job, Charmla Chari? Possibly. I don't know. Alan Moore. 
I give him three months. Second question, yes or no, does this cause Don McGann his job? Sharma Lachari. I don't think so. But it's Alan Moore? No. No. Okay. That being the case. Okay. <clears throat> we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other, uh, the other big story that came out this, this week that nobody's talking about because we're talking about the Rob Porter incident, and that is the fact that the budget came out. We had a government shutdown, and the big question is, has the GOP lost its way? This is Backroom Politics Live from New Jersey, New York, and Northern Virginia. We will be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Politics. Ironically, the Count Basie music you heard at the break is the man from Red Bank, and we're only an hour outside of Red Bank, New Jersey. Greetings from the Garden State. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of. 
on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Sharmila Achari, Alan Moore. Hey, we're going to shift gears here for a second. In case you missed it, because a lot of people did, uh, the president put out his fiscal year 2019 budget request, which shocked a lot of people, not only inside his party, but even outside his party. Uh, basically, what we have is a budget breakdown that has a total of $4.4 trillion in spending. It does roll back Obama-era financial regulations put into place, but the spending reforms that were supposed to cut the deficit by $3 trillion over 10 years, they're still looking for how they're going to fund stuff such as $23 billion for infrastructure, border security, $782 million to hire 2,700 new Border Patrol agents, $10 billion to the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, It is just an amazing spending bill that caught a lot of people, both sides of the aisle, off guard. Uh, It does raise the question, because this budget has drawn the ire of many in the President's party, including those inside the Freedom Caucus in the House, who were traditional Tea Party, fiscal conservative Republicans that have called the uh, presidential budget request everything from irresponsible to crazy. That being said, let's talk about this for a second. Alan Moore, let me start with you. Uh, with the pressure of with the pressure of the Republican Party to stop being the party of spending. And ironically, the Democrats saying that they are the party of growing the deficit. Does this put the White House and uh, the Office of Management Budget, which oversees the presidential budgets, does this put the White House at odds with Congress in a way that they can't win? Well, <laughs> I don't know if they're at odds with Congress because because now they've all seem, seem to me sort of joined hands together. To say, hey, bigger deficits don't matter that much when they get in the way of the priority of of uh, tax reform and including tax cuts um, uh, and uh, hundreds of billions in new spending, um, which was basically the key to uh, uh, the the budget deal of just a few days ago. Um, which, by the way, which, it, by the way, it, Alan, let me just jump in. That budget deal, that budget deal that passed, that two-year spending bill, was to reinstate government spending after an overnight government shutdown that not a lot of people knew about because it all happened while they were sleeping. It, it seems to me that there's right. a is it a shut? Is it truly a shutdown if everybody still goes to work the next day? Exactly, but anyway, anyway to me, but, there's a disconnect between the, the words of the Republicans, such as the Freedom Caucus, versus the actual spending appetite for the White House and their budget request, and even the spending bill, the two-year spending bill that the president signed into law on Friday morning. I mean, I'm not the first person who's <laughs> who has made this observation. Um, it won't be the last, but Republicans do a pretty good job of talking about 
too much government spending and the need to to find cuts when they're in the minority um, uh, and uh, and when there's a Democrat president. Um, when they're in the majority uh, with a Republican in the White House, no less, um, they so- suddenly find uh, that it's easier to um, increase spending by not trivial amounts um, to uh, uh, to get a budget gr- agreement to keep uh, – uh, to keep spending going, they're always for tax cuts, which um, uh, go figure. I mean, we talked uh, during the tax bill about uh, how big it was, how it was distributed, and what the timing was at a time when the when the economy was really rocking along. Um, and and uh, and now we're we're uh, we're adding some significant spending increases. The irony in all of this is that back in 2011, when they set these spending caps. The deal was um, we won't move these caps. If we move these caps, we have to do it uh, with equal increases in defense and domestic spending. And it was kind of a political compromise at the time that no one, I will say, no one thought would stick and last. And uh, here we are seven years later uh, being constrained in, 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 in not in, in not insignificant ways in spending and meeting particular needs, particularly, I think, on the defense side, but we could argue about that. Um, and uh, the only way to get more defense spending was to add more domestic spending. Um, and, of course, we're not going to touch entitlements because, <laughs> because the third rail of politics is the third rail during the campaign that even uh, pre- that candidate Trump said, no, I'm not going to touch Social Security or Medicare. Um, we're not. We're going to leave alone the the sixty percent of our budget that really, really, really has uh, uh, major negative implications down the road. We're not going to try to find some common ground, figure out if there's some ways to slow that spending, change those spending curves. So everybody joined together um, in, in this uh, in this deal. It, it's not, you know, it's it. it on the heels of a big tax cut and then significant increases in spending, um, a lot of Republicans voted no on the deal uh, in the House. Uh, a bunch of Democrats voted no on the deal, although curiously that was re- because it, there was no DACA fix. Um, and and uh, and but by and large, there was a big sigh of relief across uh, the Congress and, and around town, and I think in the White House too that hey. A bipartisan deal uh, has, has has emerged. It's going to get the votes. This will is a huge boost to closing everything else up on the spending side in March. Because remember, we didn't extend all of domestic spending and uh, for the next year, we we extended only part of it. Uh, into the into the next year, and we've still got another another date that that looms ahead in March. But we don't have a debt ceiling um, uh, issue to deal with. Um, we've got the defense and 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 overall domestic spending caps resolved. So I think the next one will be less risky in terms of a potential shutdown, unless unless we don't get a DACA fix. And uh, and uh, and Democrats decide uh, we're not going to keep these other agencies of government going unless there's a DACA fix. So they've backed away so, now twice from that. 
but will but but it remains to be seen. It 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 is just a total fundamental sellout of principle um, by the Republicans um, to. Uh, uh, I mean, I understand why they did it, and if I were up there, might be might well be advising a boss to vote for it. But um, it 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 does not bode well for any serious but, effort to constrain, right. uh, slow down the, the 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 explosive growth in spending that we now see, yeah. sort of as far as the eye can see. The details of the president's right. budget. They don't matter that much. They're always they're always an exaggerated notion. They're always dead on arrival. They're always controversial when you read about them. Oh my God, he's going to slash foreign aid again. Oh my God, he's going to cut this health spending. Oh my God, he's going to do this to the national parks, um, this to the Department of Agriculture. And the Congress looks at it and says, Yeah, ho hum. Good luck with that. Yeah, Dan Whitner, One of the things that that the spending bill that that re brought government back to work last Friday was uh, a key part of the bill was the elimination of sequestration on defense spending. That caused a lot of Democrats a lot of heartburn going forward. Uh, Are the Democrats missing the mark on this? I mean, we've had every secretary of defense going back to the Obama administration say that sequestration is just weakening our defense forces and weakening our national security sequestration is bad. How do the Democrats justify saying that eliminating sequestration is a good thing or a bad thing rather? The number of tanks that roll off the line immediately into mothballs uh, for starters would be one of those reasons that uh, sequestration uh, shouldn't give Democrats heartburn because there is a fair amount of waste uh, in the Pentagon that, uh, because the Pentagon and it, therefore anything in, that is Pentagon spending is obviously good regardless of whether or not it's useful or wasteful, um, is is something to be paid attention to. And I use the M1 tank as a pretty big highlight during the Army completely frequently says how much they don't want any more of them, just like the Air Force says how much they don't want any more of the C-130s. So there, the, uh, so when you, when you take that into account, yes, there, there are things, the military is, is stretched way too thin. That is absolutely true. And there, there are issues for readiness. Absolutely. Uh, there are also issues with overdeployment of troops. Absolutely. The question is, the the money that goes to the Pentagon is also as green as the money that goes to everything else in the federal budget. So, it, unless you take the whole thing seriously, the it's and Republicans don't seem to take it seriously unless you actually include a real conversation about defense spending. You have to have everyone at the table because there are too many of the uh, uh, folks at the table, especially on the Republican side, that the rest of domestic spending they view as nonsense, which it clearly is not. Um, and a lot of people in their district benefit from those uh, federal programs that they consider to be nonsense. But again, unless they're brought 
to the table kicking and screaming, which includes the defense sequestration, uh, you're giving away a pretty big portion of a bargaining chip there. So, yeah, it, it, it needs to be handled. You need to force the other side to the table. But, Sharmila, it seems to me that when we hear Secretary Mattis testify in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee that staffing levels for the military are at its lowest levels in recent memory, uh, the naval fleet that we have is not only older than it's been, but it, and these ships have outlasted their life cycles, but they're, they're also uh, fewer number of active ships in the fleet. It, it seems to me that uh, there's a quandary that Democrats seem to be playing politics with national defense at a time when the threats are greater by both state and non-state actors, why are the Democrats so hesitant to draw back on sequestration? Well, I think I think the Democrats don't do themselves any favors there, but I think that also presents a skewed uh, a skewed picture of what defense is these days. You're correct that we are facing an unprecedented amount of threats from state and non-state actors, but those threats may not be addressed through battleships or through submarines. Those threats may be addressed through computer warfare, through having talented cyber engineers uh, in the NSA and in the Department of Defense to protect America's electronic assets. So that's where that money could be going, as opposed to the political narrative talking about, oh, the Democrats are neglecting the military because we're not refurbishing ships anymore. So I think that the Democrats, you're right, should certainly do a better job of countering these points by talking about increased spending in the new where the new wave of technological warfare versus versus the older the older methods of defense that that may not be as relevant in in today's sort of war landscape. And and Dan Lipner, you know, we've seen the Democrats in the White House uh kind of do a Vulcan mind meld of sorts over entitlements. Nobody wants to talk about entitlements. As Alan pointed out, it is the political third rail, but it seems to me with now looking at a $1 trillion deficit, now is the time to talk about entitlement. Is, is this not the time that we talk about everything from uh, means testing Social Security and means testing Medicare and Medicaid to even looking at uh, you know, fair tax, flat tax? Why would the Democrats be against that? Okay. There are a lot of things in there you just included. So uh, let's, let's, let's knock down the, the, the nonsense stuff first. Fair tax and flat tax uh, canon of all people is the, it was a tax idea that, that uh, Steve Forbes loved because he wanted to make sure that he paid the same amount of taxes as his secretary, um, which depending on his accountant, who knows? Uh, and there's also little to no evidence, uh, as far as I've seen, from, from serious economists that says that it would actually do what needs to be done to actually pay for uh, the government and the infrastructure, including our military, uh, that we need to pay for. Um, as far as the, the means testing for Social Security and whatnot, the, I'm actually an advocate for for uh, doing means testing as well as lifting the cap. Uh, this is the other side of things that 
again, Republicans never seem to want to talk about the actual paying for things. Um, and uh, as much as they, as Alan will say that Democrats aren't talking about that, uh, I, I, I will simply point to outside of serious economic crises, uh, since when a Democrat has been in the White House, did have have uh, budgets ballooned in excess or deficits ballooned at, at these kind of levels. And we have a pretty good track record of presidents uh, in the last ooh, 30 years. And consistently the Republicans uh, are, are, are the ones blowing holes to the deficit consistently. Um, right now the economy is going smoothly, and we're looking at a trillion-dollar deficit again thanks to a tax cut that was unnecessary. And um, unless that conversation is had in conjunction that we're looking at deficits in part because we are failing to bring in revenue, unless that conversation is had simultaneously, they are not separate issues by any stretch of the imagination, just like the talk about defense sequestration is not a separate issue from the overall budget. The same, the same money is green whether or not it's spent at the Department of Labor or the Department of Defense. It's the same money. Um, as far as Medicare and Medicaid, yes, I will concede out of the gate. That is a serious problem that you need to, to, to bend the cost curve. And there is little evidence that the, the free market left to its own devices will bend the curve on its own. There is a fair amount of evidence that government intervention and in changing how we fund uh, medicine in this country could bend the cost curve. And by the way, one of the places that evidence has come from was that right, Obamacare, from some of the experiments uh, that were done in various different places have shown that, yes, you can actually – change how how the spending occurs and what the impact of that spending is. But hey, why worry about facts with those kind of details? We can just say, hey, let's just cut taxes and therefore, and look, all of a sudden we can't afford things because we're not bringing in money. Shocking. So that's the only way to do it. Alan Moore, I, I pose a question to you. Why are the Republicans so against bringing up means testing Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security? <laughs> Okay, so so first of all, I'm pushing back on you, the use of the term means testing. Means testing typically refers to you only get a benefit if you have financial need. Today, shocking surprise here, Social Security and Medicare are arguably means tested in the way the benefits are structured. The less you pay in, the more you take out. The less you pay in, the greater return on what you pay out, as long as you live <laughs> long enough to start collecting benefits. But if you're a single person and you die, and you die soon enough, then then you then never took anything out. But, but hold, hold on, hold on, on, Alan. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I mean, yeah. does it make sense? Does it make sense that a retiree who's living on $2 million a year in retirement needs to draw that $2,400 a month paycheck from Social Security? Does that make logical sense to anybody? Well, so, so the, the, the guy who was the great longtime head of the Social Security Administration and 
favorite thinker guru on Social Security was a man named Bob Ball, Robert Ball. Okay. Um, he's he's been a little, dead a long time, and I and I knew Bob very well when I was in the Ford White House uh, before that, and then during the the Ford White House in the seventies when we had a major Social Security reform challenge that we had to undergo, and and, and I loved this guy, and and he he was. Uh, uh, he was very liberal in his thinking, very influential because he was so smart and so thoughtful. And, and what he used to say was that he had no problem whatsoever with skewing the benefits towards those with greater need. And that's what those programs do. And they do it in a dramatic way. It's not really acknowledged or even understood. He said, but in his mind, to maintain the political support for programs like this that do redistribute income in major ways, you need to have something in it for everyone or you will lose that kind of political support. Now, me, I, it, 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 I, I always found that really interesting and fairly persuasive. Now, if you're going to take Social Security benefits away from people – where are you going to set the where, where are you going to set the number? Million bucks? You get nothing? Phase it out? I mean, it's not that I have a huge problem with, with that conceptually, but there but I think there are better, better ways to to extract the comparable money from those people, which is through the tax system. But which if you is, look at but it, frankly, Alan, what on. we do. Hold oh, on, Alan. When you look at the people who have actually been vocal supporters of means testing, in this case, Social Security, you're talking about some of the richest people in the country, most notably Warren Buffett, who, uh, who believes on a daily basis Social Security should be means tested. Where the cutoff is is very simple. I mean, if you are living on $2 million a year as a retiree, you're all in, you're not working, you have $2 million every year that you can live on. The idea that you have to draw $2,400 so you can make your country club minimum doesn't make sense to me. And doesn't make well, sense to a lot of Americans who believe in means testing. So, so I, 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 sorry to be disagreeable or to, to disagree with you. That is not the conversation that's underway of means testing, get benefits or don't get benefits. It used to be that your social security benefit was tax free. And then we started taxing portions of it. Now we tax 85% of it. And we, and if your income is high, the, the federal government gets a significant chunk of that 85% back, you know, up to almost uh, over 40% just to the federal government because it's, because it's taxable. There are just, all I'm saying, Justin, there's when you're asking wealthier people, and you know you're picking this narrow thread of people living on two million dollars a year, and there are some out there, but not many, and not enough to make to to make the fight wor- worth fighting. What Dan is on to something that makes a lot more sense if you're trying to generate revenue for Social Security, um, and and that is to raise the cap on income against which Social Security taxes are paid. The 
the I, I think I, in, in right now it's whatever it is, $125,000 a year. So you take it up to $250,000 a year. That would be a massive influx of money. Now, the way the system works, you'd have to increase benefits out the other end um, when people retire. But understand that the, the more you pay in, the higher level of payment, the less the rate of return. And there is a crossover point where – you can actuarially take out less than you paid in. Um, that bothers some people who pay attention, but at least they figure, I paid in all my life. I had this promise. I'm going to get something back, even if it's not everything I paid in. Um, those are the more conventional ways of talking about helping Social Security um, pay for itself, that and increasing the retirement age, highly controversial, but something that is going on today based on changes made in 1983 when the decision was made, we're going to increase the full retirement age up to, to age 67, and we're going to spend more than 30 years doing it. Um, yeah, but, and, but and, I mean, let me ask this question, though. Charm, let me ask you. Successful Manhattan attorney, you have the ability or the potential to make – uh, a very comfortable life for yourself, would you be against, let's say, means testing to generate revenue or possibly forego payout from Social Security to keep it solvent in your retirement, assuming that you'd make a million or two million a year in, in your uh, post-work life? Actually, no. For my generation, that doesn't really make sense. I, I, you know, agreeing with Alan that I think politically it's a suicidal argument to say, hey, we're going to ask you to pay into some to a system for your entire working career and then get nothing out of it. I mean, that nobody would take that deal. Nobody is going to, lo- you know, other than the ultra wealthy like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and people who are just planning to. You have who have such massive amounts of wealth and are planning to give it all away at the end of their lives. That is an argument that I think will convince very few people. And for my generation, to be honest, we don't have pensions anymore. A, a, a big reason that high earners in the past would have comfortable retirement nest eggs and then also could draw on Social Security was because they also had company-sponsored pensions that paid them a a, a decent income upon their retirement. My generation doesn't have that anymore, and we are almost completely dependent on the markets to provide our retirement savings. And in the event of some huge market crash, that could wipe out a significant percentage of the of the wealth that we've saved up for ourselves, because because people people in my generation start putting their 401k in index funds and and other market dominated vehicles from day one. And so for us. The idea that we could be paying into Social Security and not even have that safety net at the end of the day is pretty distressing. Well, what Justin is saying is, what Justin is saying is, you pay in all those years, but then if you get lucky and get really, really wealthy, then you don't get anything out. But Justin, the sliver of people you're talking about, and the potential money you'd come back in, that would come back to the system, is chicken feed compared to. What you can get if you make small tweaks years and years and years ahead, which was done, as I said, in 1983 and bought us a couple of decades. And now that we're look, but now we're looking out into the future and realize we're not, we're, we can't get there from here. Um, 
and what are we going to do about it? And you, right. you know, you, you, it, it, it's not worth the fight of saying to people, hey, because believe me, it wouldn't be a $2 million. Um, it would be, hey, you got $250,000 a year. You don't need that 35000 The hell I don't. I mean, where do you it, – it, it would be a fight would ultimately be this self-defeating rather than to say, look, we need everybody's buy-in. The last time it was Alan Greenspan who chaired a commission. It had Republicans, Democrats, outsiders. It was very tough, and but the, but the but the crisis was real, and uh, and they came to an agreement, and it passed the Congress. It was not unlike what Simpson Bowles was trying to do, except that it was only about Social Security at the time, and. Which what you really need is buy-in. You can you can you can squeeze wealthy people more right now. I mean, Medicare is a better example. You 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 can you can have a lifetime of a short lifetime in America of work, literally pay in a few thousand dollars, and get the same exact benefit uh, when once you turn sixty-five as a person who pays tens of thousand dollars a year into Medicare, same benefit, Medicare Part A, identical. Um, and and that, that kind of, of heavily tilted redistributive process is part of the system now. And you're much better working with, within that framework rather than to try to say, hey, rich people, you don't get anything anymore. And and right. and it, it 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 really has a powerful impact, as Sharmila says, on 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 folks' sense of fairness and and broken promises. Right now, people say you can't touch Social Security. We paid in. We were promised something. They don't know what it was. They were promised. They don't know how how much redistribution from wealthier right. to poorer goes on right. in the current construct of those systems. But that's right. You, you you go at the system and you get millions of people involved rather than, you know, some thousands of, of rich people. Dan, what are they'll pay their question. Oh, oh, what was that, Charlotte? Yeah, go ahead. I said, Justin, to, to add on to my earlier response and to answer your earlier question, I think part of the reason that my generation is skeptical of means testing is because unlike previous generations, being a high earner now – doesn't have the same kind of linear correlation to whether or not you're going to have a lot of money at retirement. Because you don't have an expected pension, because all of your money is really tied up in the markets and you can't predict where yeah. the markets yet, theoretically, you know, it will steadily increase. You can't predict any sort of large market shocks or, you know, where the market's going to go in, in 30 years. You can't, there, there isn't the same degree of comfort that I'm going to be sitting on a big pile of money in, in 35 years, even though I could be potentially even though I could have the potential to do so now. Okay, fair right. enough. That's, Dan, that's, that's Dan, actually means testing. That's, that's the, the, the means of the recipient is what is tested. So if you lose your shirt in the market, lo and behold, your means have declined significantly, and that and Social Security as the insurance policy for you is still sitting there. So I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm maybe I'm misunderstanding the argument, but I think that that seems both fair and right. It's Social Security is an insurance policy to ensure everyone gets some kind of retirement, regardless. Uh, as long as you paid in something, you get something out if you need it. 
I, I cannot believe that I'm agreeing with Dan Lipner. That's amazing. No, amazing. I think you guys are losing sight of the difference. But you're talking about something that's that's more akin to a pure uh, uh, insurance system, and that's what the disability insurance component of Social well, Security theoretically, is. I, I mean, These theoretically, are all tied in together. If, if, Alan, if you become disabled... But Social Security was designed as an insurance policy, not as a retirement plan. Listen, no, no, no. It, 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 it's called OASDI. Old age, survivors, meaning typically in the, in the original time, wives who did not work, of, peop- of, of men who did, and disability insurance. So the survivor's piece is... Uh, the, the, none of these, none of these, are strict measures of financial need. You can be, you can have disability, and be very rich. But right. as long as you, as long as you pay in and meet the requirements of uh, the system, you are. And here's this this controversial word: entitled to certain kinds of benefits. It's an entitlement that grows out of the. Money you pay in voluntarily, well, not, not voluntarily, involuntarily, it's, 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 it's required that, 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 <laughs> that you pay, but your expectation and your understanding from the time you start paying in is, okay, if I'm disabled, I'm going to get a benefit. If I've worked long enough and I die and I happen to be married or have minor children, the survivors, they will get some benefits. And right. when I get old, and I can look at what the rules are. When I get old, I'm going to qualify for a benefit based on what I paid in. That's how it works. It's not your benefit is going to be based on if you had market reversals, if you made bad judgments, if you lost right. your shirt in some kind of speculation, or through horrible luck or were subject to a terrible injury. Um, it's it can't do everything. It does a lot. It's amazing how much it does. It does way more than it, than it should, arguably, which is one right. of the things that's put so much financial pressure on it. So, Sharmila, let's pivot for a second, and let's talk a little bit about some of the other budget items that were kind of surprising. Sharmila, would it surprise you as a Democrat that if I told you that the Trump presidential budget request for fiscal year 19 included a 5% increase in the Environmental Protection Agency? It would surprise me. It well, guess what? It does. <laughs> does 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 this does this show some of the fiscal responsibility hypocrisy that's coming out of the Trump White House? They want to cut, 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 but yet they put a uh, a five percent increase on EPA, an agency that they wanted to go away in the first place. I mean, well, I think both. Dan and Alan said it very well earlier in the show. This is, uh, to Dan's point, this is one of the many examples of Republican hypocrisy on a myriad of issues, right? They, they talk about cutting government spending and reducing size of government and then pass a massive spending package. They talk about Hillary Clinton's cavalier attitude towards classified information and then have people with interim security clearances and you know not the right levels of clearance looking at top secret information. They talk about Bill Clinton's record of harassing women and, you know, engaging in sexual misconduct. And then they consistently defend men who are accused of the same behavior. So right. this, isn't, this isn't a surprise. And to Alan's point, 
you know, neither party showed the stomach for actually, you know, putting their money where their mouth is because because 2018 is a tight re-election year and neither party is confident that they can retain control or, in the Democrats' case, gain control of of the legislature. And so, so now you have you have both parties that are afraid of pissing anyone off. And so the answer is to just, well, let's let's fund everything. Let's talk a little bit about the infrastructure plan that the president's put forward. Uh, $27 billion worth of infrastructure plan that the president has come up with no way of showing how he's going to pay for it. Alan Moore, we do have a crumbling infrastructure. Our roads are horrible. Airports are overused. Even our seaports are in traffic condition. Uh, not to mention the critical infrastructure like power grids, et cetera. With all this investment that the president wants to put on, how is he going to get his own party to jump on board without showing a way to pay for it? Well, it's, it's a big challenge. Um, and is it, on is top it something, of, is it something know, he can sell? Let me ask this question. Is it something he can sell and get buy-in from the Republicans, particularly the Freedom Caucus? I, I, well, it's not. I mean, he he doesn't absolutely need the Freedom Caucus, as he proved uh, on this this latest spending package. But he needs a lot of Republicans, and and there are a lot of Republicans who held their noses and voted for this package because the choice was uh, actually have a have a have a real shutdown where people didn't go to work, and we have a little bit of chaos before we come back and work out some kind of a deal that's probably not going to be all that different from what was worked out. Um, and, and, uh, but, but with regard to your question about infrastructure and, and, and Republicans, I think there was an opportunity for uh, a big infrastructure bill a year ago before we <laughs> used up all the potential money on, uh, on tax cuts uh, some of which made sense, in my opinion, some of which did not, and the timing was always questionable. And then this increase uh, in spending, which was a bigger increase than than uh, than than I was expecting, uh, and that I felt was was needed under the circumstances, easy for me to say. So I th- I, I think that if there was money, it's been spent, which makes it all the much harder to come up with the oh. 200, uh, 150 to 200 billion a year that the president is sort of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, over 10 years that the president is 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 talking about because uh, it's a you know one and a half trillion dollar uh, total package. The 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 feds will will uh, federal government will come up with 200 to 250 billion, and the private sector will come up with the rest. When we're trying to figure out how that would work, hey, where would the where would the the federal money come from? Would it be offset? Would it be taken from elsewhere? Or we just tack it onto the deficit, which we seem to do with impunity anyway? Or would we would we try you know would we try to offset it? Um, or and now we're reading about some of these ideas. Would we start selling uh, federal government assets? There's talk like here locally. Maybe it's time like, to sell like Dallas Airport, Reagan National Airport, BWI right. Airport, some of the some of the main uh, 
some of the main roads that are managed uh, by the federal government um, here uh, here in the D.C. area. You know, hey, maybe you can maybe you can raise a billion dollars. I, I I don't know what Dulles Airport would be worth to private owners. Um, how how much money they could extract from it, and you know what the market would bear, and what the impact would be on service. I mean, it's an interesting subject, but yeah, every well, single one of those 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 kinds of ideas are really complicated. Have massive local political. Uh, controversies and challenges associated. They all take a long time. Having said that, we've got some toll roads around here um, that were financed with private uh, private partners. They said, look, you let us build a fast lane and charge varying tolls to people who use those lanes. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. We've done our studies. We know experience around the country. We think we can make that pay. Uh, we think we can improve travel t- travel times and travel speed um, so, and, uh, and, and give, Alan, give you guys a return on your money. And, Alan, go ask the people that paid $65 for a toll on the Beltway one time, and they'll tell you the hell with that. Well, then they don't have to go take that toll. I mean, they've just – We've got an artery called 66 that's here for anybody who's listening to the show that that was that was was built uh, 40 years ago under very tight uh, ground rules and understandings of how it could be used. And basically certain hours a day, you could not be on that road unless you had at least two people in your car. And they've just in the last uh, within the last few months said, hey, that road was underused. So what we're going to do is we're going to let solo drivers drive on that road. But in order not to choke it, we're going to have varying tolls so that we can right. still be confident that we keep up a pretty fast, smooth uh, flow of traffic. And those tolls for several miles, no more, can be as much as 40 uh, 30, 40, 50 bucks in, in unusual circumstances. Well, if there's a sign that says it's going to cost you $45 to get from the three miles from here to the beltway. You want to get on or not? A lot of people are just saying, uh, no, no, thanks. Some are. Yeah. Uh, anyway, sure. it, it, it's, uh, I, my, my only point is that there is some experience with bringing private sector in um, to try to get better uh, better use of some of these highways, and it takes front-end investment, and they're controversial. Um, right. Whether, you know, the, the, the jury's out on whether those things were a good idea. Um, you know, as long as it, it doesn't it, – it I'm fortunate. I'm not one who's going to be in a situation to, to – have to have to go on that on that route. But if ever I'm in a real hurry, trying to get to an emergency or a doctor's appointment or something like that, you know, once every few months, and it costs me an extra forty bucks to go a few miles and save twenty minutes. It might be worth that twenty minutes. Yeah. Let me ask this question, Charlotte. Are we going to see a point where we may see fiscal responsibility come back into the budgetary process? Doubtful. The party in charge never wants to be the party that's perceived as taking things away from the public. That is not a strategy for winning. And so I think you've you've come to a point where 
every issue is so politicized and every there is for any cause there is an industry group or a lobbying group or a nonprofit group out there ringing the bell saying you can't cut this you can't you know this this program must stay this entitlement must hold up and so you're at the point where special interests and just the general transparent nature of the media uh, have sort of choked the ability of politicians to be fiscally responsible. I'm curious to hear Alan's take on this. Alan, your thoughts? Well, unfortunately, I think that uh, I, no, I agree with Sharmila, but I, I think I think I think uh, sadly that that it's not until we get into perceived uh, real crisis mode um, where we think, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. You know, imagine we we see inflation start to bump, and we see interest rates uh, on on new mortgages, for example, go from the you know the the low threes to between five and six percent. That's gonna that that will have a massive impact on the housing market because people buy houses based on what kind of a monthly payment that they that they can make, and if the if the monthly payment is going to be fifty percent higher than than they thought for a particular house, they can't pay that amount for the house. Um, and so uh, in, inflation is a, is a grotesque, terrible, uh, painful uh, learning experience. It's sort of a club over the head. I'm hoping that doesn't happen. But if you know, we can trigger a recession with greatly inflated inflation and interest rates, and whenever interest rates go up, significantly so does the cost of servicing the federal debt which we know now is in, uh, up in the 20 trillion dollar range um so uh so a percentage change in interest costs is 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 200 billion dollars a year on the federal debt i mean it's it's suddenly the, the, these differences uh are massive and we don't have we don't have a choice on uh, the need to pay for them. And I think that, that the, the reason we saw the market, uh, the stock market bounce around last week is like, gosh, we're at full employment. We've got some wage increases. Hey, aren't those great things? And then we, we see interest rates starting to climb and that freaks out uh, uh, the markets because they, they worry about uh, a return to, uh, to in, in, inflationary pressures, and all of the the, the flow through follow on effects that those bring about. But until right. we start feeling the pain in a significant way, there's no compelling need to make these changes. Simpson Bowles Commission, which is now God, I don't know what eight nine years old. That that was that, that was sort of a, a result of the. Of the of the of earlier fears of increased uh, federal indebtedness and the and, and all of these things I'm talking about and and it was a very serious effort expansive proposal they came close to uh, to coming to an agreement and possibly getting a vote and possibly making some structural changes in spending taxes and these entitlement programs we missed the mark. Uh, I'm not blaming anyone. There was nobody that, other than Simpson and Bowles, that were really, right. really pushing, pushing hard for it. Uh, neither the, the the Republicans or Democrats in Congress nor the White House really had a stomach to go all in for it. Um, right. And 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 the, 
but there wasn't a feeling of emergency in the land that was touching the uh, the, the the public, and uh, right. And I'm, well, I'm afraid that it might take something really horrible before we modify our our, our behavior right. again. Right. Well, let, let me. Uh, I mean, there's a ton of things we didn't cover on today's show. For example, the stock market correction that happened over the past week. Uh, uh, just real quick, one-word answers because we're coming to the end of the show. Sharmla, is this the end? It, was this the big correction, or are we going to see more correction down the road? I think we'll see more corrections down the road. Alan, do you I agree? I think the market is overheated, and now it's correcting itself. <laughs> I have no earthly idea if I really thought I knew, <laughs> then I would, would not be on this phone. I'd be off trading and trying to sort this out. I right. hope so, but I don't know. Yeah. Real quickly, I, there's, there's, a, there's a departure from DOJ that I want to just quickly in, the, in two minutes talk about, and that's the departure of uh, the uh, assistant – uh, Attorney General Rachel Brand. Uh, there's some controversy about her de- about her departure regarding the timing of it, particularly with the fact that DOJ is under attack from the White House, uh, as is the FBI. Uh, there was concern that she should Rod Rosenstein get fired, she would have to oversee it. She departed for a really good job with Walmart. Is this a signal that there's dissension in the ranks that the attacks on the DOJ are inappropriate or mistimed by the White House? Alan Moore, real quick. The, the, the attacks are definitely damaging um, and, and, and totally inappropriate and, and just wrong for the country. I have no idea whether that had an impact on her. This is an amazing job on paper that she's going to get, right. and it's probably just one of those things that pops up and she thinks, oh, mm-hmm. No one is going to be mad at me for leaving for a job like this. Thank God I can get out of here. Is, is Rachel Brand the first of major departures from DOJ, Sharma? I have no idea, unfortunately. I don't know many people within the DOJ, but I would, I would add to what Alan just said that I think you're right. This Walmart job was a cover of, oh, this is a great job. No one can – no one can blame me for leaving, but at the same time, there are reports that the Russia investigation was a significant factor in why she chose to leave, and I think that tells you that that implies that Rachel Brand thought that if she were called to lead the Russia investigation, if Rod Rosenstein was fired or quit for some other reason, that she would be put in a, potentially be put in a position that would compromise her ethics and integrity, and she didn't want to be put in that position. Okay, last question. Does Rachel Brand's departure, does that help or hurt? the White House and the Mueller investigation. Ellen Moore. No impact. Sharma? No impact to a harmful impact. Ah, okay. Very good. Hey, real quickly, I want to take a couple of minutes here. I want to introduce everybody to our newest intern. Uh, we at Backroom Politics take time to uh, bring in new interns to help us out here on the show. And we sometimes bring them on the air. It's my pleasure now to introduce you to our new associate producer and intern. Her name is Audrey Howerton. Audrey, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Justin. Thank you. Audrey, what do you tell us Hello, hello Audrey. <laughs> Audrey, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Um, I'm a junior at Skidmore College. I'm currently studying at American University for the spring semester. And a part of what I'm doing down here is getting an internship. And Justin was so kind to let me come work with you guys. Well, we're glad to have you. Where are you originally from, Audrey? I am from the South Shore of Massachusetts. Ah, another mass hole. Ah, person after my own heart. I'm not going to say that that was and proud to be part one. of the reason why. Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, um, Audrey, as somebody who's new to Washington, what are your first impressions of D.C.? Oh, man, oh, man, I don't know how you guys live down here. It is a crazy, crazy city. Um, I feel like I learn something new every day and yet know nothing. Uh, it's it's a nice city, though. No, it's, it's busy. Everyone's really nice. Definitely, definitely different than Boston. Does, does it worry you that you're now seeing how the sausage is made? A little bit, but, you know, you got to know what to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Audrey, what are your plans uh, after Very college? Where are you thinking of, that was a great way of putting it. Audrey, what are your plans after college? What are you thinking about doing after you leave us here at Backroom Politics? If um, we don't make make so much money that – we're going to hire you, but keep going. Uh, you know, like like every naive person, I want to go to law school and make a difference in the world. <laughs> Charmela, you want to give her advice on that? <laughs> Read every article in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal for the last 10 years telling you why that's a terrible idea. Will do. <laughs> this, coming from, this coming from an attorney in Manhattan. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Uh, it's helpful. Words of encouragement. <laughs> Yeah, Alan, Alan great, Moore is somebody. Alan Moore is somebody who's been in Washington for a lifetime. Any quick words of advice you enjoy in two minutes or less? It's a great city, and there are many, many ways that, notwithstanding all of our moaning and groaning here on the on the on the show, that you that you can make a difference here and there in ways that will be meaningful uh, to people out beyond yourself as well as to you. Well, that is Charmla, I appreciate any, it. <laughs> Charmla, any words of encouragement about a future political lawyer that wants to get involved in the game? Yeah, I do exactly what you're doing. When I was in D.C. for college, I took advantage of all the opportunities for internships and meeting people on the Hill and just really taking advantage of all the free resources and the very easily accessible resources there are there. It's it's so easy to go meet with your congressman. It's really easy to get an internship on the Hill or with any of the many think tanks doing great work, doing great work down there. So keep doing what you're doing. Take advantage of it as, as much as you can. Or getting an internship. And if you find it's not as easy <laughs> as that, just <laughs> stay with it. It's great if you are already here. It's, it can be very frustrating to come to town with high hopes and go home with your tail between your legs a few weeks later because <laughs> nothing opened up for you. It can take it can take time, but uh, getting that first foot in in a door um, uh, can make uh, all the difference, and and other doors uh, will open. It's t- it's so a subject first... of a longer conversation that we should have at another time. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> the always, first remember to always cultivate first... your network. Yeah, and she's learning to that. Alan's point, but yes. She's learning that. And she's also learning that, hey, having an opportunity to intern at the best political talk show you've never heard of is kind of awesome. Isn't that right, Audrey? It's pretty awesome so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, listen, from, uh, I want to just say, first of all, I want to give a big shout-out and thanks to the folks at the Tobacco Leaf here in Robbinsville, New Jersey, uh, kind enough to let us broadcast here. I got a fireplace. I got New Jersey, the Garden State, out in front of this picture window. It's been a great opportunity. Thank you to everybody here, Robin and the crew. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And uh, on that note, uh, on behalf of Alan Moore, Sharmalachari, Dan Lipner, Admiral Ken will be back hopefully next week. And our newest addition on behalf of Audrey, uh, Audrey Howerton, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next Tuesday for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Remember, you can download us to the podcast going to blogtalkradio.com slash backroompolitics. You can also follow our Facebook feed at facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. Follow us on Twitter at backroompolitics. And soon, right, Audrey, we'll have our mm-hmm. revamped website up with some good blog feeds. You can go to that, www.backroompolitics.org. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday. This is Backroom Politics.